Do we uh do we need do we need a couple minutes to warm up here? <laughs> yeah. Do you wanna do some stretches and crack our knuckles? The uh the new um Giles Martin mix is coming for revolver. That's the one I've been waiting for. Yeah, it's exciting. Really though, the one that's blown me away so far has only been Sgt. Pepper's. I found the Abbey Road one had to be listened to on speakers and the Let It Be one just wasn't very good because Let It Be Naked is the better album. Yeah, that's true. I, I thought that the White Album was good. Oh yeah, that one was great. Yeah, Sgt. Pepper's and the White Album were Especially great. the extra material they released with it. Mm-hmm. But Michael thinks that the original one, Michael's a... An, um, a uh, reject modernity. A bottle letter, yeah. <laughs> but wait, listening to it is always anachronistic, right? We can't fully occupy the <laughs> subject position of the listener in 1969 or whatever. But we can't occupy the subject position of 69. Mm. <laughs> hey, uh. <laughs> Tops and tiles. That's what the that's how they do it down down under. <laughs> <laughs> we can do better than no, that. We can't we can't keep keep um, making fun of Australians. This is a pro Australian. This is a pro yeah. subaltern podcast. Yeah, we are letting the subaltern speak for sure. And uh, the they're about as close as you can get to Canada in terms of attitude. So that's nice. Do we want to? Talk about the queen dying. Do we care about that? Nah, no. Nah. But we we could uh, provide the the Hegelian hot take. Yeah, for all the Americans in the audience, the queen is a uh, or the monarchy. The monarch is it, it basically it instructs us um, in the lesson, the Lacanian lesson that that the the big other does not exist and the uh, empty place of the master signifier. Yeah, I mean, like caring about the intricacies of the royal family is stupid, but I don't. I feel like caring a lot about the royal family on the other side is kind of stupid too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's like, and it's 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 especially funny when Americans do it because it's still very like, and they're like, and they're like, this is the most important election in our lives. <laughs> yeah, they're electing. <laughs> they like, yeah. There's like a sham election for basically the exact same figure, and ooh, one more thing. Oh yeah, and my someone was saying to me recently, like, yeah, but like, look at the king now, like he's so gross and slimy. I was like, but isn't that, isn't it great for a king to look like that to show the ridiculousness of a king? Yeah, embodied in the king is how frail and pointless he is. Mm. Also, you don't put much stock into a man who addresses his mother as mummy. Yeah, that's pretty. pretty (laughs) I was shocked when he said that. He's like, he's like, mummy. <laughs> 73 year old man or the fuck. <laughs> the king is the man who thinks the queen is mummy. More importantly, Goddard died. Yeah. Goddard is dead and we have killed him. What do you think of that? Oh, that was pretty good. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. Goddard. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, that's good. 
David Goddard music movie. Uh, Probably Alphaville or Breathless. Contempt. Contempt is not the best movie, but it, it looks great. And, and uh, Bridget Bardot is in it. And she looks great. Always. Who wants to um, who wants to debase themselves by saying that we have a Patreon? You're so good at it, Will. You've already debased yourself, so do we, it again. We always forget to do this. Um, we have a Patreon, and there's a whole lot of ep- extra episodes on there. So if you want to join, come on over and join. And there's the Discord, and we're doing the... Uh, this is actually Michael's chance to debase himself. Michael, tell us about the reading group. We have... Oh, yes, the reading group. Yep. So in October the 12th, through to January 4, we're doing a reading group with Matthew Flissfader on Zizek For They Know Not What They Do. Cool. Every fortnight we'll be doing that. You're all invited. That's, that's every two weeks to the uh, Americans in the audience. We've got a, a film screening this weekend of Arju Lacan. Cool. Get in. Via Patreon. I, yeah. You I didn't know we were doing that. You can, <laughs> you can join. You can join those things via our Patreon, right? Yeah. Um, and also, I shall debase myself now. You're listening to Zizek and so on. Yeah, Michael, and Will, hey, and Peter. How are we doing, fellas? Good mate. Pretty good. I oh, pretty good. Right before we started recording, I heard a knock on the door, and I I open it, and an old woman's standing there, and she's like. Oh, it's so nice to find you in. I'm like, okay, this is a neighbor. I was like, me? Uh, and she's like, yeah. Uh, and she reaches into her bag and she pulls out a pamphlet and it has a photo of a guy looking out onto the onto an endless horizon. And it says, and she and then she asks me, Do you think you can enjoy life forever? <laughs> Good timing. <laughs> yeah. And I said, <laughs> Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And I said, No, because we die. And I just closed the door. <laughs> <laughs> so we can figure out whether or not like my response was really correct. Well, it was correct. Like in the, in terms of like, that's how you want to deal I with it. I mean, correct. correct. Yeah. Uh, maybe <laughs> philosophically for this episode, I wasn't, but. Uh, you could have said, you could have said no because um, of the death drive. Yeah. But that is not as snappy. It was yeah, it's pretty satisfying. <laughs> No, because not only the death room. <laughs> well, she tried. She tried knocking, and I just, I just left it. <laughs> you open the door, and she's like, "I'm you from eighty years." <laughs> I have enjoyed my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I missed out. Message for myself. You from the future. Uh, yeah, so the reason why that is so uh, spot on is because we're doing an episode on we're death doing drive it. and enjoyment. Yeah, and also on um, Lacan's maxim, the only thing. Wait, <laughs> let me get this right. Uh, you cannot give why. <laughs> <laughs> the only the only thing the only worse thing, the only thing worse than being French. The only thing, uh, the only thing of which one can be guilty, is of having given ground relative to one's desire. Or maybe that's, maybe that's why what I should have said to her. D'avoir cédé sur son désir. Or 
don't give way relative to your desire. Um, maybe we want to start by, uh, where do we get this from? Uh, we got this from the 2005 book of collected Zizek essays going from basically from like 89 or 90 up to 2005. Um, put together, I think, by our old friend Rex Butler, right? Yep. Rex is uh, back. Yeah, there's some bangers on this. I got I picked up a, a cool copy of it too. Nice. I got like a, I'll, show, I'll show this. Got kind of like a, like a kind of graffiti sort of street Zizek. Right, 2005. Yeah. Banksy Zizek. Banksy, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely like bad boy. Yeah. Here. Well, he's the, you know, he's the most dangerous philosopher in the West. True. Who's the most dangerous philosopher in the East? Stalin. So the specific reading from the book is uh, Zizek's afterward, uh, why Hegel is Lacanian. Yeah, which we're actually not going to touch on this on that the title. Yeah. Tough look. So yeah, the, the subheading, which we will touch on, Drive Against Nirvana, Lacanian Ethics. Okay, maybe we're just kind of skirting around it because this is actually pretty dense and it's really good, but it's a pretty fine argument that he's making. So we got to kind of follow it. Well, okay. To, to begin, the phrase, do not give way relative to your desire, has always confused me. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that just seems like what, you know, utterly self-absorbed and, and hedonistic and... Um, yeah, it's like permissive hedonistic, like like, ideolo- like capitalist ideology. Yeah, that's shit. what it yeah. seems like. Yeah, enjoy yourself, right? Mm-hmm. But no. So, I, you know, I try to make sense of it and I, I usually get as far as... Um, the thinking, okay, I, I just don't understand something. It gets, yeah, it gets as far as smiling and nodding when I hear Todd say it. <laughs> <laughs> because according to what I've heard on, on Y Theory, uh, this is quite possibly the most important Lacanian aphorism, right? I think some mm-hmm. people say that. Mm-hmm. Because it's a whole ethical, it's a, it's a whole lesson in ethics. Yeah, so... Uh, what Zizek's first statement is pertaining to this, he says, uh, this maxim, simple and clear as it appears, becomes elusive the moment one tries to, to specify its meaning. And that's what How I does, was talking about. Yeah. How does it stand with regard to panoply of today's ethical options? It would seem to fit three of its main versions, liberal tolerant hedonism, immoral ethics, and so-called Western Buddhism, uh, which we'll get to at the end. Uh, the first thing to state categorically is that Lacanian ethics is not an ethics of hedonism, which is what we're posing as a potential outcrop of that statement. Whatever it means, it does not mean unrestrained rule of what Freud called the pleasure principle. Yeah. For Lacan, hedonism is in fact the model of postponing desire on behalf of realistic compromises. Okay, so that is a strange idea, right? Yeah. Because, again, it seems like hedonism is all about the immediate enjoyment of pleasurable things right yeah at the at the yeah. like absence of realistic compromises but what he says is that it's hedonism in relation to these realistic compromises right like it's only it's hedonism as a kind of way of avoiding they're still inner like intimately intertwined is what he's yeah, saying and mm-hmm. it, I, he basically he, he goes on to say that it's the continuity between the pleasure principle and the reality principle. 
Yeah, hedonism is in fact the model of postponing desire on behalf of realistic compromises. In order to attain the greatest amount of pleasure, I have to calculate and economize, sacrificing short-term pleasures for the most intense long-term ones. Mm-hmm. So like you just said, it's like the version of the pleasure being the long-term one is still is still a kind of hedonistic pursuit of it. Yeah, like like the grind set, for instance. Uh-huh. <laughs> Perverted yeah. and hedonistic. That's a great example of it, actually. Yeah, because like one of the things you don't realize about the pleasure principle is that it, it still involves a kind of postponement. Mm-hmm. So it's like to enjoy as little as possible because you're trying to avoid um, like minimizing unpleasure. So that's why they, they coincide, right? So it's um, the reality principle is the postponement of the pleasure principle. And yet, yeah, in its own postponement, it still is involved in the same process. So like the reality principle is itself the prolongation of the uh, pleasure principle yeah. in that sense, in that hedonistic sense. Yeah. The way they put it was the reality principle is a delayed action pleasure principle. Uh, yes. Yeah. That, and then that, he writes, one, that one I felt kind of, kind of slapped me in the face because I, I <laughs> recognized some of myself in that or a lot of myself yeah. in that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he writes, I literally wrote that. I wrote, fuck. (laughs) Go ahead, Mike. It's like the ascetic, right? Like the monk who goes without pleasure, but there's a a, a mode of enjoyment in sacrificing. Yeah, or like wearing a hair shirt or something. (laughs) Where's the point? You remember that very fine point he makes about the hunger artist, the Kafka short story? The hunger artist who performs um, basically over the course of a long period of time doesn't eat and performs his hunger. People come right, and right. At him that like he's sustaining himself off of not eating, and mm-hmm. so it's not like the kind of ascetic thing is the same thing in terms of like enjoyment. Like it's just to to not to um, bar yourself from enjoying things is to enjoy barring yourself from things. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah, uh, he also adds that even even Buddhism, Western Buddhism, is uh, kind of uh, performs the same trap in that the purpose, like the the Dalai Lama has said, shit like the purpose of life is to be happy. Not even Jordan uh, Peterson thinks that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was where uh, uh, Zizek and Peterson actually agreed in the debate. Yeah, yeah. So, so. I like the way that Zizek said that he was like, yeah, even the Dalai Lama said the purpose of life is to be happy. Not true for psychoanalysis. One should add. <laughs> okay. So then he gets down to it. Oh, well, yeah. What does this mean for ethics? I guess. Yeah. What does not giving way relative to, to your desire mean for ethics? Hey, how is that an ethical statement? Because it sounds unethical. Zizek says in Kant's description, ethical duty functions as a foreign traumatic intruder that from without, disturbs the subject's homeostatic balance. It's unbearable pressure forcing the subject to act beyond the pleasure principle, ignoring the pursuit of pleasures. Okay, so somehow we're, we're supposed to be thinking of ethical duty, which uh, forces the subject beyond the pleasure principle, um, ignoring the pursuit of pleasures, but also not giving way to your desire. Yeah, how can we base a ethics on desire if it's not hedonistic? Mm-hmm. Uh, a kind of we could view of it as a kind of ethical stance of ethics are what the subject decide is like true for themselves. 
kind of beyond mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a traditional notion of good and evil mm-hmm. than the kind of Nietzschean perspective. Yeah, yeah. that's nice. And this is why Howard Rourke from the Fountainhead is an ethical figure for Zizek because he stays true to his desire. Mm-hmm. There's a fidelity to it. Right. But yeah, because yeah, uh, this is where he uses Don Giovanni, right? From the opera, Will? From the opera by Mozart, Michael? I, I believe so, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like the idea that Giovanni is this figure who refuses to repent. He has a fidelity to the life that he's chosen. And it's an, it's an immoral ethics, but it's immoral out of a principle. So he behaves that way as a fundamental choice. Because that's the difference between morality and ethics. So morality he's defining as concerned with the symmetry of relations to other humans, which is a like, do not do to me what you do not want me to do to you. Mm-hmm. And then an ethics is dealing with the consistency with yourself. So a fidelity to your own desire. And he, there's a footnote, which is funny, with the do unto others thing. He says that the best psychoanalytic reply to this moral maxim is to imagine what it would have meant for a masochist to promise us that he will follow this maxim in his relation to us. <laughs> it's like that, that part made me think of uh, the movie In Bruges, the Ray Fiennes character wants to kill Colin Farrell's character because he accidentally killed a child. And he's like, yeah, mm. yeah at one point he says like, you don't do that. If I killed a child, I would instantly, you know, put the gun on my mouth and kill myself. And sure enough, at the end of the movie, he accidentally kills a child and he, and, uh, I'll find it, but all your heart. (laughs) He follows his heart and he puts the gun in his mouth and he kills himself. Oh, he says, okay. He puts the, he, he kills the boy. And then he realizes what he's done. And he says, you have to stick to your principles. So he is an ethical agent. He's an ethical agent. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. He says the boy who lived. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we, we touched on it for a second, but. Then he, he moves to, to Nietzschean ethics as a kind of like, okay, if we're going to think about ethics, uh, can we conceive of it in the kind of immoral ethics of Nietzsche? The, uh, you know, the ethics of the Ubermensch or whatever indicated he, he feels quite cohesively by Stalin's notes in one of Lenin's books um, where he writes uh, weakness, idleness, and stupidity. These are the only things that can be called vices. Everything else in the absence of the aforementioned is undoubtedly virtue and does strike one as quite Nietzschean, right? But that ethics comes from a kind of personal uh, standard, I guess. There's yeah. not an, an external source of, of ethics in that situation. So, yeah, as opposed to what, what Nietzsche discussed in the genealogy of morals, a morality which is built off of resentment. Uh, the uh, kind of Christian ethic of being sheeple. Yeah, kind of effacement of one's direct experience towards the greater uh, goal of heaven or whatever. Mm-hmm. How is that word pronounced? Is it r- the reassentiment? Resentiment. That it inverts the moral structure of this kind of morality based upon, upon one's own uh, I don't know, experience confrontation with the reality and, and suggests that experience itself is immoral and that the true basis of morality lies beyond experience. Yeah. Uh, 
we can get into this later, but uh, and we we our Buddhism episode was ages ago, uh, in a different era of Zhuzhak and so on. But um, we've occasionally mentioned it. But uh, I grew up Buddhist, and as corny as it sounds, I was actually reading Nietzsche's genealogy of morals that started my transition away from no longer being Buddhist because everything that he wrote of the kind of Christian ethic of, of just what we discussed of a kind of debasement of, of experience and in relation to the kind of truer nature of what's beyond experience struck me as very true about Buddhism. There actually is a funny note in here about, about the internet and identity theft, which strikes me as very early 2000s that there's a, there's a concern about identity theft because no one, like no one cares about that at all anymore. But yeah. Cause he doesn't even call it the web. It's like, I, I, what he says something along the lines of like um, a world connected <laughs> computer, by, <laughs> by yeah. computer network or something like that. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. What was the Zizek joke about the person writing a letter when in prison, whether they're using red or blue ink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they yeah they say so before they go into prison, they say to their comrade, um, w- "Let's have a code so that when you receive uh, a letter from me written in in red ink, read it, read everything I say in in its exact opposite meaning." Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So if you say, you know, the the food here is really good, yeah, that food's bad. Um, so the the first letter that that the comrade receives from this person who's gone to prison is um, they're going on and on about how, how, how good the guards are. Uh, I forgot actually what they say in the letter, but the final, the final sentence is the only thing that they don't have is red ink, but this is written in blue ink, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So Zizek's point is we, we don't even have the language to express our unfreedom. We don't have the ink. And pointedly this, um, these notes that Stalin's written are in red ink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that might be more in the frame of like making corrections like a teacher. <laughs> hey, all right. So, okay. The problem though, for Zizek with Stalin's ethics and Nietzschean ethics here, well, he actually doesn't say directly Nietzschean, but I think he's implied is that there's still, uh, uh, it's not that it's too immoral, it's that it's secretly too moral, still relying on the figure yeah. of a big other. Yeah, it projects it projects a kind of like singular, kind of unchanging. He says objective well, brings, meaning from yeah. the perspective of the last judgment, he says. Yeah, so like he brings Merleau-Ponty into it, uh, saying that the horrors of the, you know, the terrors of Stalinism will uh, have been worth it in the future by the, by the ethics of the future projecting onto the past, right. In the, in the mm-hmm. ultimate kind of victory of communism, worldwide communism, the transgressions of Stalinism will have been made worth it. Maybe, so it's yeah, like this ultimate big other in Nietzsche's terms, like untimely. Uh-huh. Interesting. Oh yeah. 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 He calls it like a wager on the future or a bet mm-hmm. on God. Mm-hmm. Almost in the Pascalian sense. Mm-hmm. Refer to our recent uh, Patreon episode, uh, Pascal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but but the Lacanian ethics are are much more harsh. He says they're not. There's not the assurance of the big other involved. Uh, you have writes, to relinquish any point of reference, any any external guarantee for it. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So he says the harshness of Lacanian ethics is that it demands us thoroughly to relinquish any such point of reference. It's further wager is that not only does this abdication not deliver us to an ethical insecurity or relativism, or even sap the very fundamentals of ethical activity, but that renouncing the guarantee of some big other is the very condition of a truly autonomous ethics. Um, but not in the kind of, what was the uh, Arendt trial with uh, Eichmann? Yeah. Eichmann tries to uh, exonerate his actions with reference to Kantian ethics by saying that, you know, he was obeying the moral law. Yeah, the categorical. I, I remember when I first heard that, I was like, oh, well, that obviously gives the lie to the categorical imperative. Mm-hmm. But it's that that is exactly what the categorical imperative uh, is does not mean. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the idea is not that you can just blame an external authority. It's that you have to assume uh, duty for your actions on yourself. But is it for an imagined authority that you yourself are creating? And this is a genuine question. Like oh, there's still question. the idea that it's, that it's towards the universal, right? Like if you're projecting your, 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 your subjective individual actions as if they would be taken up by everyone. But I guess you're, it has the kind of inversion because it's, it's, it's still through the, the subjective action. Yeah. So it's the inverse, I guess. Yeah. Cause you're not going around to tell, telling everyone do what I do. Do as I say, not as I do. Actually. <laughs> yeah. And I say, uh, <laughs> do not give away. Yeah. Cause this is the difficulty with Lacan saying that the big other doesn't exist, but it still functions as a virtual point. Mm-hmm. Like it still functions as a standard that there is some position from which your actions are being viewed objectively. Yeah, I think right. that's continuous with what we were just saying. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because, you, you, it's not, there's, is, it, it, there's not on, a, on authority from on high telling you how to act, but your actions are kind of in, towards the idea that there is a kind of universal principle for morality. It's true. and mm-hmm. But they're also kind of, as much as there isn't one, there also effectively is one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not telling you how to act, but it's like it's kind of the virtual point on which your actions are projected. Yeah, so there's no like substantial big other, but there is a virtual one mm-hmm. manifested through your actions. Mm-hmm. But also, I think manifested through um, a, a society which which functions and acts as if there is one. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and but yeah, to it not being cohesive thing that standard changes throughout time obviously and that's why like according to lacan's position or zizekian position like there is the the kind of quilting point of the ethical guarantee but it's not a specific thing which which means that it's you know there is no big other Mm -hmm. what do you think of the where he says because i thought that was interesting he didn't explain it all he said the, the further from that quote you said you read further wager is not only does this abdication not deliver us to an ethical insecurity or relativism okay why doesn't it deliver us to a relativism because if everyone is just acting relative to their own desire you know it's the same problem with uh i think with psychoanalysis like the unconscious is ultimately responsible for the way we act in the world mm-hmm. does that does that alleviate our own conscious responsibility for our actions i think it's a different way of saying that yeah that is and it actually goes nicely into his next point about the one of the fundamental ethics of psychoanalysis Jesus is claiming here is actually is responsibility. Yeah. The evidence he uses for this is uh, Irma's injection where Freud has the dream about administering the wrong injection. He has the fight with the other doctor, et cetera. 
Zizek says that this is like fundamentally a dream about Freud's attempt to relieve himself of, of his responsibility. Forgive yeah, me. Yeah, his guilt. Mm. His guilt. So in relation to those two elements, uh, that this, wait a minute, isn't this a limitation to like an ethics of psychoanalysis or of, of like Kant's ethics? Uh, he says, however, far from being a limitation, this very feature brings us to the core of Kantian ethical autonomy. It is not possible to derive the concrete norms that I must follow in my specific situation from the moral law itself, which means that the subject himself must assume responsibility for the translation of the abstract injunction of the moral law into a series of concrete obligations. Mm. Which is why it's not just relativism. Yeah, because there still is the moral law, but it can't tell you how to act in the concrete situations. It can only kind of be projected the other way, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't claim to be a instrument of historical necessity or um, nation or simply taking orders, like in the example before about the German officer. Mm -hmm. Duty isn't an excuse, basically. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think... Be, like what's what's at work here is that there's no like you can't inscribe a concrete way to act from the moral law because there can't be a law that kind of covers every concrete situation and yet the concrete situation does kind of point towards the universal right but i think what structurally is the problem here is because there's a absence in reality itself, in the concrete situation that can't be fully uh, captured by the law. Yeah, because it has everything to do with the like appearing of the situation itself. Yeah, he's, he says uh, there's a kind of like separation from the big other, from the moral law, let's say. So like the more or like the big other is kind of is the social substance, right? Uh, on the kind of like what, like how the subject acts within the world. But there's always a kind of like inconsistency in that social substance. So like the, the example of kind of the encounter of the inconsistent big other of the social space is uh, Adorno's analysis of the antagonistic character of the notion of society. So we have either, we have two extremes. You've got like the Anglo-Saxon, like individ- individuals comprise society. Uh, ultimately in contradiction with like the sociologist, um, Durkheim uh, as like society as an organic whole. So there's these two, there's always this conflict between, okay, are we a society of individuals or is like, is it this more kind of French notion of a society as a whole? Uh, the point is of course, is that it's, it's both and that uh, it can't, it can't exactly be, it can't be either one. The, the antagonism fully. between the two is the antagonism yeah. at work in the heart of the social. Yeah, group. and which is why you can't define society in a in a cohesive way because mm-hmm. society itself is antagon- antagonistic. Yeah, structured around an antagonism. Yeah, yeah. So that we got the structure, the irreducible kind of antagonism of society. Uh, so, like Jesus writes that what first appeared as the sign of our inability to understand what society itself really is turns out to be the fundamental feature of social reality itself. That is to say, initially we were alienated. Our limited knowledge prevented us from achieving a notion of society. Then in a properly dialectical reversal, this limitation proved to indicate the antagonism of society as such. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he, 
you, he touches briefly on the example of quantum physics and to, to be brief about it as well. It's that you can't know the um, velocity and the position of a particle at the same time. Yeah. Like they, they, you, See, in order to know where something is, you can't be tracking how fast it's moving. And in order to track how fast something is moving, you can't know exactly where it is. The uncertainty principle. Yeah. And that the Niels Bohr um, believes that this is kind of a suggestion about quantum physics as such, of reality as such. So there's a kind of ontological incompleteness here, both in mm-hmm. his example of society and quantum physics. And he says that there is another kind of way of understanding this, inc- this incompleteness that, that Western Buddhism also functions on the notion of a kind of non-existence of the big other, non-existence of reality. Yeah, because reality itself is an illusion. Yeah. Sustained, uh, sustained by one's desire and uh, ego. ego. Yeah. And that there's also a kind of, in some way, comparable notion of like traversing the fantasy. Mm-hmm. That we can kind of overcome our, our illusions and desires and confront like the true reality or negativity or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he goes on to describe Buddhism, I think, quite fairly. So he says, like for Buddhism, the point is to not, the point is not to discover one's true self, but to accept that there is no self, Mm -hmm. that the self is as such an illusion, an imposture, right? Uh, The kind of out of joint of reality is your own, is like your, the clouding of your ego and that to kind of move beyond one's ego and to kind of access reality it means giving up this false view of the self. So like fundamentally reality is like our experience of reality is an illusion, but then to some extent, this could sound like psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. like the self as an illusion as our, our desire is, you know, somehow involved in our unhappiness, for instance. So like, what's the gap for Zizek that forever separates psychoanalysis from Buddhism? Oh, wait, before we get to that question, where I think he kind of misses in his description of Buddhism is he says that in Buddhism, there's a kind of knowledge of your, of the illusory character of your experience assists you towards enlightenment. But there is in Buddhism actually a deep distrust of knowledge and yeah. concepts, etc. cetera. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that really undermines your greater point. So yeah, what, like the yeah the nature and origin of the impetus by means of which desire its deception emerged from the void is the great unknown heart of the buddhist edifice it points towards an act that breaks the symmetry within nirvana itself and thus makes something appear out of nothing because yeah in buddhism like the realization of nirvana is really a realization of your fundamental you're already in nirvana mm-hmm. and yet there's already there's been this fundamental illusion the whole time that you're that you're not but so from where does that come? It reminds me of that paradox about the Bodhisattva, where it's like to enter Nirvana, you must be a Bodhisattva. Am I saying that word right? Yeah, that'll do. But to enter Nirvana would mean leaving everyone behind, which is selfish. So a Bodhisattva can't enter Nirvana because that would be selfish. And if he is selfish, then he would not be a Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 
consistent with his point that he makes an event and to some extent makes here is that Buddhism is caught kind of radically between a minimalist and a maximalist ethics mm-hmm. where yeah. on the one hand, it's about changing your perspective on reality because the thing that makes you uh, unhappy or whatever is that you are not actually encountering reality. You're, 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 it's clouded by your ego. And also this kind of, like what you're saying with the Bodhisattva, a, a radical change in reality that you want to bring yeah. others into this, into Nirvana, basically. So yeah, that's, it is a, it is a bit of a inconsistency. I feel like there's this, there's this Buddhist like parable about a monk who wants to, he doesn't want his bare feet to hurt when he's walking in the mountains. So he tries to cover the whole world in leather when uh, really the true understanding is wearing leather shoes. So you directly, you don't change the world out there. You change your relationship with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny, right? Because Nirvana is like a weird kind of side of impossibility, which is prohibited. That's interesting. By your selfishness, right? So what we're talking about is like a difference between drive and desire. Yeah, so he brings drive into it. And again, he brings physics into it, like his description of, of the drive. But the drive is, you know, this kind of continuous movement towards a goal that has never reached. It's not the, it's not the, act, it's not actually wearing leather shoes. It's, you know, no sooner do you want leather shoes than you want a fetching uh, leather uh, suit to follow. <laughs> <laughs> the, the point of the drive is the continuation of the drive itself, not its specific contents. Uh, mm-hmm. What's different about that than Buddhism is that Buddhism kind of seeks uh, an arrival at the realization of nothingness. Or breaking of uh, that, at least. Yeah. Breaking of desire. And Jujak's point that he's making with drive is that we can't do away with it. In, um, the Okay, so this is where it brings the Higgs field into it in that, well, I don't know too much about it just from his description. So it's like, it's it's something that comes direct, comes out of nothing but has a kind of energy to it. It's, it's uh, you could say, less than nothing. Ew. This is for Zizek Drive. Yeah. Uh, so rather than trying to access nothingness itself, the true kind of like, psychoanalytical relationship to morals is not to seek nothing. It's to understand that drive is a kind of structural necessity for our experience. And it persists Mm -hmm. as he says, beyond and against the Nirvana principle, Mm -hmm. the Nirvana principle being of the understanding of, of both the release from the, from the flow of samsara, but also the understanding that reality is an illusion. Right. The nothingness. Yeah. And can you say that, like, in terms of a psychoanalytic critique of Buddhism, like that that notion of of nirvana is a product of the death drive? Sure. Yeah. There's still there's still desire intertwined with that understanding of nirvana. Yeah. And Zizek's ultimate point here is that we uh, here here, however, one should remain faithful to the Western Oedipal tradition. Of course, every object of desire is an illusory lure. However. It is here that one should fully assert the Lacanian maxim of like, the non dupe errant. Even if the object of desire is an illusory lure, there is a real in this illusion. The object of desire in its positive nature is vain, but not in the place it occupies, the place of the real. This is why there is more truth 
in the unconventional fidelity to one's desire than in resigned insight, than the resigned insight into the vanity of one's striving. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah. the, that's a really, such a good point. And like, again, like it's another version of that point, but the, the true uh, observation that Buddhism has that, that human being is, is uh, rent with inconsistencies and the inability to attain what you desire and uh, the illusory aspects of, of mm. that desiring. But the point is that that is the very activity of the drive and is the, and is yeah. the, the nature of human being as such. And he yeah. says that he says that the very frustrating nature of our human existence, the fact that our lives are forever out of joint marked by a traumatic imbalance is what propels us as humans towards permanent creativity. I loved that line. I thought it was beautiful that there's that this is kind of the, the wellspring of, of our, of like the necessity for creativity. And that if we, if we kind of subscribe to the Buddhist notion, um, there's no reason to create at all. Yeah. Really. That's, that's a manifestation of your own ego. Um, it's good. So it's, and in the, and in the Nietzschean sense, it is a kind of withdrawal from reality a fundamental mistrust of reality uh, and for, for Zizek and what Zizek, or for and what Zizek is saying with the drive, it's not that we're kind of saying that the drive is real, that it, that the contents are real, but that the place it occupies has a kind of structural necessity in the way that we act within the world. And that where a Buddhism, where a Buddhist would try and say that's, that's fun because of that, it's an illusion and what should be done away with mm-hmm. the psychoanalytical one is, is realizing that it, yes, there's not kind of not a cohesive reality to it, but it's structurally necessary. And in like maybe Hegelian terms, like you take the distinction between those two points and you, and you inscribe it into the movement itself. So that human being is that kind of relentless movement through uh, the contradictions of its own existence. Yeah, because I mean, this is the point you made in the Buddhism episode is that Buddhism kind of still seeks a, a, a reality free of contradiction. Yeah. So would it, would it be fair to say something like Buddhists think that there is a metal language? Yeah. Um, that and like Nirvana, you know, surely is a kind of notion of big other, right? You think so? Explain that. Well, in that it's still this kind of external like guarantor of our of like a Buddhist's uh, present actions. Mm, okay. Like if you're present, like there's still, if you're say you're, you're, you're a Buddhist and you're, you're, you're seeking to live your life in accordance with, with the Buddhist principles. Nirvana is this kind of like horizon on which you're, you're basing your actions and, and to, on, also on which on, you're understanding okay. the illusions of your life. Yeah. And to get there, you have to give way relative to your desire, right? Quite literally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I yeah. just like one more time hitting that point of creativity, like, you know, for, for anyone who's trying to, to make something, to do something creative, what seems to limit it is limit. It is your feeling of not being able to do it. Right. The impossibility of doing it. But what Zizek is saying here and the, the whole point about the death drive is like, that is the, that is where creativity comes from. Mm-hmm. We can just turn on Zizek. Like clearly, his writing, his creation is 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 takes the form of a kind of drive. There's never a goal that he is specifically reached. Anyway, um, anything else, fellas? 
No. No. Yeah, uh, see your second song, Mike Peter Wolf. See you guys later. Bye. <laughs> 